Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon. I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, go to indogerman.center. And you can also find the link in the show notes. Today, we will talk about digital payments. And more specifically, we will talk about the connection between digital payments and digital finance and the sustainable development goals and how digital payments may help reach those goals. So a very interesting topic and something that maybe some of you had not thought about before. So we'll explore this further today with my guest, who is, of course, as always, an expert on that topic. And today that is Marjolaine Chantreau. Marjo is an inclusive digital finance specialist with more than 14 years of experience in banking, fintech and impact investment. She is currently the head of private sector digital payment innovation for the Better Than Cash Alliance at the UN Capital Development Fund. So that's a very long title. We'll put it in the show notes so people can read it there. Marjo leads the alliance's global partnerships and in-country strategy with local and global corporations to develop inclusive supply chain structures, reaching smallholder farmers, low-income workers and small retailers in the agribusiness fast-moving consumer goods and the garment sector. That's uh, very exciting. I already have a number of questions that I could ask based on, on that. Uh, Marjo was uh, previously vice president in the city social finance team, Citibank's global business unit for inclusive and social investment finance, where she originated and executed 80 million investment in Latin America and Africa. She uh, holds a master of corporate finance and strategy from Sciences Po in uh, Paris. And she is also one of the first 10 female certified digital finance practitioners awarded by the Fletcher School at Tufts University. And in 2021, she was recognized as a woman in fintech global in the fintech global power list. And she also sits on the board of the European microfinance platform. Marjorie, that is an impressive pedigree and a CV. And we're very happy to have you here with us today. Welcome. Thank you very much. Now, most of our listeners have probably heard or used uh, some form of digital payment, and uh, most people will also have heard about the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Now, the combination of the two may be a bit more surprising. So why do digital payments play a role in achieving these SDGs? Thank you very much, Matthias, and thank you very much to give me the opportunity to share the the importance and the impact of digital payments with your audience today. So to understand the, the virtue and the potential of digital payments, I think you first need to understand how risky, how expensive and how non-transparent cash payment is for businesses and also across you know, society. So I'll give you a, an example from one of the business sectors that we work with. If you are a factory owner of garment factory in Bangladesh, 
And, you know, you are on payday, which means that on that day, you might need to pay around 2,000 employees on the same day. That means that you might need to bring to your factory a million dollar, two million dollar in cash. You need to hire security guards. You need to find a way to bring that money into your factory. Then it means that you need to sort that money and put it into envelope and make sure that everybody, you know, you have the right change to do that. So you start to see what are the uh, difficulties of managing this cash for a factory owner. If you now move to the factory worker, of which 60% of them are women, coming in a lot of time you know, from, from different areas of Bangladesh, it means that on payday, you need to enter into a room, which is guarded with you know, security guards at the entrance. You're receiving an envelope and you have to count it and accept you know, and start negotiating if it's not the right amount, which, as you can imagine, is not very easy to do in that environment. It also means that everybody knows it's payday in the factory. So you might have people waiting for you outside the factory to start receiving money. It might be your husband, might be your brother. It can also be your mother-in-law. And we've heard a lot of stories about that. And then maybe the last, you know, another difficulty is that you then have to travel with that money in your bag to go back to your home place, which has security issue for the workers. And finally, you might even need to find a secure place to hide that money because you might be actually living in a dormitory, um, which a lot of these factories also have in some countries. So you're also starting to see the difficulty of, you know, managing cash payments for the workers. And finally, if you're thinking about the businesses and the global brands, for example, that might be working with these factories, it means that the only way that you can check whether the workers in your factory have received the right amount is by having just a paper page and someone has signed, you know, and say, I have received, you know, $20 for this month. So this is where digital payments, which come in terms of bank account, but also mobile money, cards, you know, there are now different ways of digitizing payments, really bring a better way to have efficient, transparent, and empowering tools for both the businesses and the worker that we're talking about. And thinking about the sustainable development goals, in the case, if I can continue on the example in Bangladesh, we have seen, for example, a great project from an organization called BSR in Bangladesh, which has worked to, with factories to digital wages for women workers, with also, you know, a support program to the workers, and they have seen tremendous impact for the workers. So to give you just a few examples, one in two of these uh, women were able to open an account in their own name for the first time. One in five started to save regularly on their wages, right? So which means that they are able to put some money aside to maybe do some other investments or move with other priorities in their life. And importantly, also, one in 10 of these women starting to say that they feel more in control of their money. So they're starting to not giving their wage to a third person. They're starting to manage their money directly. And 19% of them have actually been able to start having a say in how the money is being spent at the family level. So, you know, this is a very concrete example that shows you how people are getting paid, how people can transact in payments can actually have tremendous impact on the way they can conduct their lives. So it's not just uh, a convenience. I mean, it's also convenience, I guess. Uh, it's easier, as you said, uh, for everyone involved, uh, basically in the process to do it digitally rather than having to uh, work with, with cash. But it also has a cultural or societal effect in the sense that it empowers certain people. In this case, you mentioned mostly women, of course, and gives them uh, more opportunities than uh, they, they did before. Yes, and I mentioned in particular women because 
there are still a gender gap in terms of accessing accounts in the world. The gender gap, and that's a positive news, it's been reducing over the year. And this is important, I think, to also stress some positive trends in that, in that area. But it's still around, you know, 6% gap, which means that in emerging economies, women are still 6% points less likely than men to own an account. And so that, as I was explaining, you know, doesn't allow them to really control their money or get also access to other financial services to help them invest in their businesses or start other economic opportunities. Now, when we look at the developed world, of course, uh, cashless payments are nothing new. So they existed long time before everything was digitalized in Europe. You know, I think the times uh, when workers still got their money in cash, uh, they're in an envelope, they're long gone, 50, 60 years uh, or more probably. But I, I understand that the, the, what makes the difference here is, is really technology, right? It's, it's not the traditional bank account, as you know, some of us may know it uh, from, from the developed countries where you have a branch office, you go there, you open an account, you fill out lots of paperwork. It's these frugal digital solutions. I remember that, I don't know if that's where it started. Was it in Kenya where they had the M-Pesa system introduced, what was it, about 15 years ago or so? Yes. Was that really the kickoff of this um, banking or, or payment revolution? So th what we call now the mobile money re revolution, which is really being able to access an account through your phone and through your mobile phone. It started in different countries around the same time. I would say that the M-Pesa model in Kenya has been one of the most successful and has been one of the most widespread example. Today, GSMA, which is the association of the mobile operator, consider that there are around 300 active mobile money operators and services in 98 countries. So you can see that this has really spread across the world. So today, what we can see at the Alliance is that there are different models to drive this digitization and the mobile money. Um, but this is really, an, mobile money has been an accelerator of giving access to account in emerging market. And one of the parallels that I like to use is that, you know, in a lot of the developed world, it was really done through cards and ATMs and, you know, what we call POS, point of sales elements, and also through bank branches, right? But this is also a very expensive model, right? And this is why it has not been able to really spread across the different geographies. And that's the reason why you still have around a billion people that do not have access to financial services today in the world. So the fact of using mobile money and small shops to be the point where you can either put money into your phone or access your cash is really, you know, driving a, a, a strong difference for emerging market and driving the access to account. And the last point I would add is that, of course, this brings some regulation issues because you are bringing new operator into the financial system. But this is really the key to make sure that you can ensure everybody at the, you know, even the most vulnerable can get access to account to manage their finance. You mentioned the GSMA, and of course, I understand that many of those companies involved in, in the payment in these new digital payment systems are phone or carriers, telecoms, because they have access to their clients through the, the mobile phones. What about traditional banks? Have they also gotten into, into this business or are they still lagging behind there? No, that's a very good question. They have also started to develop their own solutions, um, and this is now a very important strategy for you know, a lot of financial institutions, especially in emerging markets, which is also, you know, driving innovation and, and I think driving regulation. You also have the mobile operators. You also have, you know, what we call fintech. So other organizations and companies that are also providing different services 
also making links between different operators in the system. And what I think we are seeing today is that, you know, for us, it's not mobile money against the bank, against even the fintech. It's all of them together that are needed to create the right ecosystem to really provide the choice to the customers. And I think this is something that, of course, a lot of regulators now are taking into account and really building into developing the right ecosystem for the development of digital payments. In some countries, I guess, this is left entirely to the private sector. And then in others, there are varying degrees of government initiatives, I guess. Uh, one example that I know of, uh, because that's uh, where you know this uh, podcast uh, comes from, the Indo-German Center, the host of or the sponsor of this podcast. In India, the UPI system, which is run or pushed by the government, is considered to be quite successful. In your experience, is there a, a role for governments to play? Do you think that's the way to go, to have one overarching, all-inclusive system? Or is it better to leave it to market initiatives and, and see what comes up in terms of maybe also competing systems within a country? So again, I think, as I was mentioning, there are around 98 countries that have you know digital payments and mobile money services. So We really believe that there are very different types of models that are that are needed to drive the solution, and it really depends for each country on where does the regulation comes from, what are you know the forms of legal uh, institution that can offer financial services. The Indian model is a very interesting one, and it's a, a model that has had a lot of very important impact, and in particular for financial inclusion, right? So in that sense, what's interesting in the Indian model is that the role of the government was also to provide this general infrastructure and be able to actually also bring the private sector into that infrastructure to be able to develop a diversity of products and an interoperable types of services. And so this is really what you know we, we also considered as a key enabler of digital payment at the Alliance is the importance of creating an interoperable system. And that means, you know, that means that you are able to use different types of digital accounts and you're also able to move between the different technologies. So you might be able to send money from your bank account to mob your mobile money and then you can move in mobile money between the different operators. And this is something that is still lacking today in a lot of countries and in a lot of regulation. And so it's a little bit like the beginning of mobile phone, right? Where you were able to only call someone from the same operator And here in some countries, you are still, you know, have to send money only to the people that have the same account as you, right? And that, of course, hinder the growth, hinder the capacity to, to drive yeah. the flows. Um, and this is where, you know, the government has a very um, strong role to play. Another very strong role that the government has taken is also being a role model to start digitizing their own payments. And so we are seeing a lot of governments that are also starting to provide pr social protection, digitally, money in time of crisis, health system. And I'll give, you know, of course, the example of, of the COVID-19 pandemic and, and crisis, which has really been a very interesting moment for digital payments. And what we have seen is that countries that had invested in building a public digital payment infrastructure that reached the most vulnerable were really able to very quickly provide the support that these people needed during the pandemic. And, you know, India, for example, was a good example of that. Because the system was created, because the most vulnerable had an account, you were able to really, you know, send money very quickly to them at the time of need. 
And if you think about it again, if you think about the alternative in cash, what does it mean? You need to send buses of cash everywhere in the country with people queuing to receive their money. And that is, you know, of course, not yeah. doable at the scale of what we were dealing with with the pandemic. So this was also, I think, a very important moment, you know, where both government and businesses understood the importance of driving the digital payments. Yeah, this is interesting. And I find it uh, remarkable that uh, in some of these instances, developing or, or emerging countries are even um, more sophisticated than uh, the developed countries. And I say that because we had exactly the same uh, discussion uh, during the pandemic uh, here in, in Germany, to what extent the government could make money available to its citizens as a kind of an emergency payment. And uh, it, it wasn't possible. One of the reasons was that the government said, well, first of all, we, we don't know the bank account details of our citizens. We don't have that information. And second of all, we can't process that many payments. So there, are, there was a limitation in terms of how many payments they could have processed through the traditional banking system. And uh, it would have taken them a long time to reach 83 million inhabitants. And um, I know that the the Indian ambassador, he has uh, mentioned that several times. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> uh, I'm uh, sure. Pinpointing to the, the, the fact, you know, how many, how many payments they have processed in a very short amount of, of time, uh, of course, during the pandemic. And, and I think it's interesting that you mentioned that it's not just about payments per se, but it's about access to a wider array of financial services potentially. I think it's also, I guess, somehow linked to the identity question. So, you know, who, who are we talking to? Which maybe is not so important when it's just about cash transfers. Um, but of course, when we're talking about credits, when we're talking about uh, insurances and all that kind of of stuff, that it uh, becomes more important. Is that also an issue that, that you see? Because traditionally, I think lack of access to banking for many people was not so much because They couldn't go to a bank branch or so, but it was maybe they had difficulties proving who they were because they had no identity card or, you know, they could not comply with the paperwork. Um, how is that uh, being addressed through digital solutions? So that's a very important question. And that is still, you know, one of the challenges of driving financial inclusion. Of course, it depends on the regulation in the country. One of the recommendations is also to be able to create some what we call tiering system, right? So let's say that you could access a basic bank account, maybe without, you know, giving your ID. Again, that depends on the country. In some countries, even to have the basic bank account, you need to, to have a type of ID, but it can be also different types. And then, you know, as you are starting to use your account more, you need to go through maybe higher KYC process. And that has been, you know, one of the action taken by some governments to ensure that you could have access to a basic account to, you know, start uh, at least sending money to your family or receiving money in case of crisis, right? And to go back to the Indian example, India is an example of a country that have tried to pair those two processes and has linked the fact of going through a very important digital ID transformation and include the bank account at the same time. So that is also one of the key characteristics of the uh, UPI system um, in India. And to go back very quickly on the India model, what is quite impressive is that in 10 years, India have been able to reduce the access to finance account, moving from 35% of people you know, that had a bank account 10 years ago to 78% today, right? And they have also completely eliminated the gender gap. So this is the type of you know, strengths that you can see um, in, in this type of model. So 
that's um, you know to answer your question, the, the the digital ID is still an issue, but there are also ways that you can move towards that and continue to provide some access to uh, financial inclusion. Sometimes it, it seems also that we're having competing aims here, right? So if we're talking about social inclusion, financial empowerment, we try to lower the hurdles. So everyone who works on those topics says, you know, we have to make it easy, low barriers and so on and so forth. Now, if we had someone here who would, for example, work on the topic of money laundering, corruption, uh, organized crime and all these topics, they would say, oh, no, 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 we need to control that. We need to know exactly who is behind an account, who is making payments to whom and so on and so forth. So I I guess there's also a, a, an inherent conflict of interest sometimes. This is really, you know, I think the balance that regulators have in their head all the time, right? And so it's all the anti-money laundering and, and KYC and know your customers, you know, this is extremely important. And this needs to be built also in a digital payment infrastructure. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's the role of the regulators. I think what they are trying to balance is how do you allow for some innovation or for some basic account, you know, to, to be able to have that balance. But, you know, in most of the countries, you need to have your account registered and you need to go through and know your customers, you know, stringent regulation. So this is also extremely important. And I know it's a point that you wanted to mention, but also to make sure that you keep the trust in the system, right? Because, As I was giving you the example of COVID-19 that have seen a very strong growth of digital payments, we've seen at the same time a very strong growth of fraud and scam and difficulties, you know, of being at risk of losing your money, right? And so this is also why the, the, the regulatory environment is very important and why you need to really work on client protection and privacy of data and also making sure that the savings and the money of people depositing money in digital systems are being safeguarded, right? And to that point, I wanted to mention, you know, one uh, framework that UN has been developing, which is called the UN Principle for Responsible Digital Payments, which gives nine practices, nine principles that are extremely important to make sure that the digital payments infrastructure that you are building, whether as a government, but also as a company in your supply chain. And these are really principles that are extremely important to ensure that people that didn't have access to financial services before and are getting access to financial services digitally for the first time, you know, can really be protected and can benefit from all the advantages that we just described of digital payments. So I'll give you, you know, one example, which is make, for example, recourses clear, quick, and responsive. So what we mean by that is it's very important that the end clients of digital payments know how they can submit claims, how they can ask if their money is being lost or that they cannot access it. And so this is also the responsibility of the providers, the financial service provider, but also the government and the infrastructure in general to make sure that they can have access to resources in local languages that they can also have access to resources where you can speak rather than type if you have, you know, literacy issue as well. Um, so this is the type of example of practices that are extremely important to ensure everybody can benefit from the growth of digital payments. Yeah, this is great. And you talked about trust. And so far, we've highlighted the, the benefits and, of course, cash 
less payments have a number of advantages. You can't be mugged. You can't make mistakes when counting. You know, there is no counterfeited bills and all these kind of things. But of course, there's also a trust issue. You know, if, in particular, if there are many players, many of the end users may not know, are they trustworthy? What happens to my funds? And we know that even well-established banks can suddenly go bankrupt. Uh, so the money is, is gone. Let me ask you, what about blockchain and all these kind of, of technologies? Because I'm not saying that they are not or that they are immune to fraud, but at least the the theoretical idea behind them is that you, you don't have that counterparty risk. You don't have to rely on an intermediary, a bank or a financial operator, but you have direct access and everything is recorded in some form of public ledger. Does that really play a role or is that still an absolute niche thing for speculators and and tech nerds? So we really see the blockchain uh, mechanisms and innovation as you know, a tool that is going to be used in the future to, to be integrated into a financial system that might be regulated, right? So, you know, we know that a lot of central banks are also working on their own cryptocurrency. We know that they are, you know, working on those protocols. So I think for us, it's really about how is that going to be integrated also in part of the financial system? It would be very difficult, I think, at the moment to be promoting these type of solutions for emerging market economies or for, you know, people that are getting access to financial services for the first time because also of the uniqueness of the model that they are developing. But we really think that it can become an important tool to be, to be developed in the right way to support access to financial services. Okay, but there's still some some development needed, you say, in order to make it f consumer friendly to to those people. And that consumer you're safe, I would say. Consumer safe. Okay, that's that's a good point as well. Because you said, you know, you mentioned that a lot of these solutions they involve, for example, local shops rather than bank branches and so on. So they are not fully cashless then in that sense because you could also imagine a system where there's no cash at all at no step in the process every payment whether it's between a company and an individual or between two individuals is just exclusively being done digitally that does not work yet uh, in most countries so what we really see in terms of how the ecosystem is being developed is that it is most probably not possible to be completely cashless at the moment. And this is not really something that, you know, we would be promoting like very strongly. We really think what is important is to have the opportunity to transact as much as possible digitally, to have access to the appropriate products for your needs. And there is also the very important element of being able to switch between cash and between digital, right? And this is still very much needed, I think, in a lot of economies and in a lot of cases, right? And so this is the importance of, and this is, I think, one of the challenges to also the, the growth of the digital payments is the importance of creating an ecosystem. So it's not only important to get paid digitally, it's the first step to get paid digitally, but it's extremely important to be able to have access to the right products to spend digitally. And when we talk about spending digitally, you have, you know, different ways of doing, but, you know, one of the key elements that a lot of people and a lot of organizations are working on is what we call merchants payments. So it's being able to use your digital account to pay in a small shop, to pay at the grocery, to pay in the markets. And this is an area that has seen a lot of growth during also COVID-19, especially, for example, in, in India, I think there is data that shows that there's around 80 million people that did a merchant's payment for the first time during the pandemic. So 
this is really happening. But this is the type of additional services that needs to continue to be built. Another example, which is one of the strong use cases to spend digitally is how do you pay your bills, right? If you have to pay your electricity bills in some in some countries, you have to go to the bank and wait and, you know, make the payment at a bank branch, right? So how can you actually help utility bills and um, our TV bills or school fees bills to be paid digitally is a very important uh, element also of using your money digitally. And why it's important it's also because it's one of the most expensive transactions to get the money out of the system. And this is kind of another, you know, challenge that needs to be worked out at the ecosystem level. It's the economic element uh, and aspect of the digital payment. So making sure that it doesn't become too expensive also to bring your money digitally or, or take it out digitally. Mm. That, that is interesting. And I, I sometimes wonder why you said, you know, utility bills, sometimes they can't get paid uh, through the digital system. I'm just wondering from the, the company perspective, why wouldn't a company jump on that opportunity immediately? Because, I mean, we talked about this at the beginning of the episode when you mentioned that hypothetical Bangladeshi garment uh, factory owner uh, for a utility company to collect cash payments or to do it through a bank must be extremely more difficult and also ultimately more costly than having some kind of a, a, an automated uh, payment solution, right? So why is there sometimes such a reluctancy um, on the company side to offer such uh, payment solutions? I think, you know, in some cases, what you see is that the utility companies are also public companies, which have not always gone through that, you know, digital digital switch. But to be very transparent, more and more governments are, are, are doing it and really driving that uh, that area. And this is a very important area of growth right now, also for the digital payment system. Another hurdle is what we discussed since the beginning is, do you have the right infrastructure in place to offer that capacity to you know pay your bills digitally right and do you have all the people that do not have access to an account to do it would still need to go to the bank so that's also why you know in some cases a lot of the companies everything that could have been digitized has been digitized but it's really also you know that last mile of not being able to access a digital payment account which i see yeah doesn't help you to make it happen right a bold prediction the world in 10 years. We always ask our guests to give us a bold prediction about how the world might look like in 10 years. So my question to you, Marja, would be all these topics that we've discussed about digital payments, inclusion, 10 years from now, where do you think we'll be? So I think for me, 10 years from now, there will be a diversity of institutions that are facilitating payment and access to financial services across the world. This is already happening, as I was mentioning, you know, 98 countries have uh, mobile money deployment, so the digital payments will continue to grow. But what's important, I think, is to ensure that everybody will really see the benefits of digital payments. We need to make sure that all the different players work together to ensure that digitization is done responsibly. If we, you know, we need to make that happen to make sure that women clients are being served, to make sure that rural users are being served as well. And so this is really, to me, you know, where I want to see the world in 10 years is make sure that as the digitization continue to happen, we have taken the steps to make sure they are done responsibly, building trust 
and bringing into the system also, you know, the most vulnerable and the one that still lack access to financial services. Some, you know, some ways to do that, that I've already mentioned in the podcast is to prioritize women clients, make sure that you have the right products for them, make sure that you have the right way for them to access the product. A second one is to ensure interoperability and choice. You know, we need to make sure that people can transact freely across the different systems so that you grow the pot uh, in general. And then, of course, there is the whole aspect of the consumer protection and ensuring that, you know, the money is saved and, and can be accessed at any time by the different parties. And that, to me, also will include, you know, the blockchain question that you had and all of that, but it needs to happen into that, you know, responsible angle which can only happen if all the different parties work together, the government, the private sector, the financial system in general, and the companies. Marja, I would like to talk a little bit about the business side because uh, business diplomacy today, of course, looks at all these uh, questions, global issues from a business perspective. So a lot of our listeners will be involved in businesses. They may be CEOs of companies or have other executive roles. We discussed a little bit the benefits, I guess, from the company side of using or accepting digital payments, much less uh, or lower transaction and handling costs. But other than that, if I'm running a company, what should I now do in your opinion to help facilitate this process of global inclusion? And maybe also, why is it interesting for me from the company perspective, in addition to because I believe that it's more really the right thing to do and, and I'm convinced that we should help people become a part of this global financial system or get access to these services. Is there also something that is maybe less altruistically that could motivate my company to get involved in these things? Yes, thank you very much for that question, which is really at the core of what you know the Better Than Cash Alliance do as well, because we work across government, companies and international organizations to support the promotion of responsible digital payments. The experience that we had, and we've done you know, a lot of different research in different business sectors, is that there are really business advantages also for the companies to digitize. And so this is really, to us, the both aspects of the business reasons and the link to the sustainable development goals and all the different you know, positive development that you will also bring that, that really drive the switch from cash to digital payments. I'd like to give you the example from another sector on that topic. So we have worked with the World Cocoa Foundation, which is the organization that gather the biggest cocoa companies in the world. And we've worked with them, and they are a member of the Better Than Cash Alliance. And we've worked with them in Ghana, for example, to try to understand how much cash costs the cocoa sector currently in Ghana. So to give you a rough idea, cocoa in Ghana, it's reached around 800,000 farmers, smallholder farmers. In total, it reaches around 2 million people in Ghana. And Ghana represents 25% of all the cocoa beans in the world. So we're really talking about a, a significant sector you know, for the Ghanaian economy. At the peak of the harvest for cocoa, you have around a billion dollars that is being exchanged in cocoa communities across Ghana. The analysis that we were able to say is that 90% of this one billion is transacted in cash. That means that you hear stories of what we call purchasing clerks, which are the people that make the link between the companies buying the cocoa and the smaller farmers. They are driving 
cars and vans full of cash. They are driving motorbikes with bags full of cash and banknotes to be able to pay, you know, for the cocoa harvest at that time. Of course, the security issues are immense and this is an extremely risky business for them to do. And there is also the issue for the smallholder farmers that it doesn't really help them build the track record to show that they have actually, you know, sold this production, that they have the relationship with these different companies to help them start building a track record of their production and then maybe get access to some credit and some you know, additional capacity to invest in, them, in their farm. And so the cost of all that elements have been estimated at around $21 million, which is around 90% of the revenues of the cocoa companies in the country. So we're talking about you know, significant business opportunities if you are really driving to digital. So roughly, you know, the benefits that we've seen for businesses, we've seen improved efficiency. So you know, one of the costs is also how long does it take you for this purchasing class to bring the cash to the cocoa communities. So you can, you know, reduce also the time that you have uh, between getting access to the products. We've seen, of course, reduced cost of managing um, the cash and anything like that. Um, another example is increased revenue for the company. So that we've seen in particular for the fast and moving consumer goods company. So when you're talking about working with small businesses, in emerging market, the fact that they are able to offer digital payments, they have seen increase in the amount spent in their shop. They've seen increase, you know, clients and, and, and customers coming also to their shop. So this is also an important driver of revenue for some of your uh, stakeholders. And finally, we've also seen importance, better and stronger relationship with some of your stakeholders in the chain. So if I finish with the garment sector, we have worked with a company like Gap, Gap Inc., which has had a commitment to make sure that all the workers in their tier one factories that are working in their tier one factories are getting paid digitally. And doing that transformation, they have seen an increased retention of the workers by around 20%, because it was sometimes the first time that the worker were able to access an account. And so that was also part of the benefits that they see in being employed at these factories because they were able to get access to financial services. Fascinating. So you're trying to convince companies really by appealing to their self-interest, where you know they what they care about the most, which in most cases, I guess, is their bottom line. And it's interesting to see how varied the, the number of partners are from producers in uh, developing countries to multinational consumer goods uh, companies such as uh, Gap. If, if I may add, I'm still an optimist. I really think it's the diversity of the drivers that bring the companies to, you know, digitize payments. And, and I think we've, we've seen, you know, that across the different examples. Yeah, excellent. I think it's fascinating. And, and as I said, I suppose that many of these developing countries will become more digital than many some of the developed countries. And I mean, I, I'm based in Germany and Germany is still, to my dismay, sometimes is a very cash-based country where still in many places you can't pay with a credit card, so you, you have to pay cash. So yeah, I sometimes wish things would work here as easily as they, for example, do in countries such as India. Executive Briefing, what you should read now. We ask our guests to suggest one, two, three, whatever readings can be a book, a journal, article, a blog, anything that you believe would be interesting to our listeners if they want to 
dig a little bit deeper, learn more about the topics that we've been discussing here today. No, thank you very much for that question. And I have to say, we are very lucky that we have just released <laughs> the last version of um, a report which is showing the link between digital payments and the sustainable development goals. So I think if you have one thing to read, and it's a short read, it's around, you know, the executive summary is around three, four pages, but we've really been able to give practical examples of how digital payments have contributed to the sustainable development goals. And we have been able to look at 13 of the different sustainable development goals, which means to me that for any audience, person in the audience, you can decide to look at which topic that you are most interested in, whether it's access to water, access to education, access to um, small businesses and decent work. They are really examples for, for everybody in every sector there. And it is really done to be very practical and, and give direct examples. So that to me would be, you know, one of the best read. And then after you're completely convinced that you have to digitize, <laughs> I would recommend, you know, the UN principles for responsible digital payments, which to me are really the framework that we will need to apply as companies and as government and as civil society to make sure again that no one is left behind on the digitization trends that are happening in the world today because this is really the biggest one of the biggest threat as well I think is that digitization will continue but we need to make an effort to make sure that women are included rural areas are included and, and the most vulnerable get the benefit of it. Excellent. Those are two very, very interesting recommendations. And I hope that many of our listeners will look into both texts. We'll make sure that we put links to them in the show notes. So for those of you who haven't been able to note it down, don't worry, you will find that in the show notes. Marjo, we've come to the end of this episode. Thank you very much for this interesting, inspiring and also very optimistic conversation about things that we can do to make the world a better place. And I'm very confident that in 10 years, the, uh, we will have made a lot of progress and will have made sure that many more people have access to these fundamental services. So thank you very much again for being on this show today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.